Good morning. Thank you for being here, for uh, getting here despite the fact that leaves on our drive from the Northland were swirling in place, which is always a wonderful sign and fills you with great confidence for the weather. I do not know what is coming. But we do know that uh, we stand upon the Word of God, and so we are in week two of biblical womanhood. You, uh, I think many of you have a handout that is in the back there on those tables. Thank you to Kathy Taylor and Myra Watson for all their help. Thank you, as usual, to Pastor Rick, the pastoral team, and the elders for the chance to teach on these subjects. It has been a delight to do so with you, and it's a joy to be back in the pulpit. Many years ago, Christian teaching altered the way the ancient world viewed girls and women. We take for granted today that women have uh, good standing in our society, and yet this is not a value that was widely held or practiced in the Greco-Roman world. For example, I'm going to just lay out some context here. In the first century uh, AD, preceding centuries, there was a culture of infanticide. So little children uh, were exposed, as some of you will know. Little children were left out if they were unwanted, if it was uh, an inconvenient baby, so to speak, baby uh, born out of wedlock. Those children could be deposited at a certain place and then effectively discarded and left to die. That was a norm in the Greco-Roman world. Also a norm. Women were forced to marry, and even to do so at very young ages. According to one uh, scholar, pagan women frequently were forced into prepubertal consummated marriages. Now, what this means is that, I alluded to this previously last week, but a 12-year-old girl could be married off without any agency on her part, any say in the matter, and that would be the reality. She would be married, and she would have effectively no recourse, as I say, no say in the matter, and uh, basically forced into marriage. And that was not at all uncommon in the Greco-Roman world. In the pagan world, by pagan, we most formally mean uh, non-Christian, uh, but that term is a broad term, of course, that, that effectively means that, non-Christian. If a Roman woman was found guilty of adultery by Roman law, she could be exiled to an island. So uh, men did not have these kind of penalties, but if a Roman wife uh, was caught in adultery, she could be exiled to an island. If a husband, according to Cato, the philosopher, caught his wife in the act of adultery, he could kill her. So Cato was on record as saying that could happen. You're getting a, a little sense of just how little agency women in the first century AD world had. And this is in contrast, of course, this is coming to the biblical worldview and how Christianity treated women. So if you ever hear the argument, in other words, that if we could just have a secular society, women would be treated perfectly, we'd have some sort of, you know, secular utopia, and we could get rid of all this fundamentalist thinking about women that Christianity foments, uh, you need to consult the historical record, and you need to graciously take people to the historical record. This is not opinion. This isn't conjecture on my part. This isn't my reading of things. This is hard fact. This is what life was like in the ancient world for a woman. So never buy the lie that it was a picnic to be a Greco-Roman woman outside the church. If a father caught his daughter in adultery, he could kill her and the offending man. This is giving us a sense, by the way, for just how much honor and shame drove the Greco-Roman world. So if a man essentially looked bad, uh, he had all sorts of agency to take vengeance against his wife, against the woman who, in his view, was wronging him. Gives you a sense for what the Christian gospel would do then. The Christian gospel relieves men of the burden of looking good, even if a man is embarrassed by the conduct of his wife in some form. We, of course, know that the Bible offers no such code of conduct for a man who is wronged. Uh, the gospel enables us to handle shame, uh, shame caused by others in this instance, appropriately, and not to lash out and not to ruin the women around us, so on and so forth. Well, in sum, 
this theology, the theology of biblical womanhood that we're attempting to sketch out last week and this week after two weeks in biblical manhood, this theology changed first century Greco-Roman practices by giving women considerable agency and restraining the often brutal approach of husbands to their wives. Rodney Stark has said this about the church. The Christian woman enjoyed far greater marital security and equality within marriage than did her pagan neighbor. Stark says this in conclusion about what Christianity did for women in the first few centuries following the birth of Christ. Christianity was unusually appealing because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large. So what I'm trying to say to you is this. It was actually a benefit to be in the, in the church. It was a benefit to be a Christian woman and follow the teaching of the New Testament on these issues. That was not a defeater for women. It was actually an evangelistic force. It caused many women to want to leave the brutality uh, and the agency-less status of the pagan world for the Christian world. Fast forward 20 centuries or so, we have our own challenges today on the subject of womanhood. Women are still in the crosshairs in many senses. Satan has been targeting women since just before the fall happened, and he is still targeting women today. So our challenge is to build out a biblical doctrine of womanhood, and that is what we are trying to do. We cannot, in just two weeks, handle every nuance that we would want to handle, uh, but we can at least lay a foundation for understanding, as the church did 20 centuries ago, for understanding the differences between a fleshly understanding of womanhood, a secular understanding of womanhood on the one hand, and a Christian or biblical understanding of womanhood on the other. So I can't say everything I want to say. I'm trying to do justice to many different areas, but there are a number of things that we can just lay down to build uh, a theology of womanhood. Number one, first point along these lines. The woman of God going to Scripture, building off of Genesis 2 and 3 last week, right? So now we're going to the rest of Scripture in rapid-fire fashion. The woman of God is not bored, and she is not boring. If you consult the Scripture, she has plenty to do. You see this in the proverbial, no pun intended, Proverbs 31 woman. Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, sketches a portrait of the godly Israelite woman and shows us what womanhood looked like in the ancient world, uh, the ancient Hebrew world. I'm just going to highlight a few points that we dig up from Proverbs 31. Well, the first thing we see is that this woman works hard, verse 15. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So the Proverbs 31 woman, this, this portrait of, of godly womanhood, is a hard worker. She's not contra the stereotypes that you sometimes hear about a Christian woman or a religious woman. She's not sitting in the corner of the kitchen listlessly. In fact, biblical women are, in many cases, going to have very much the opposite set of challenges than you know, what do I do with my time? <laughs> uh, raising children and making a home is not boring. She makes wise decisions. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. And it's very clear that her husband trusts her to do these things. He trusts her to make decisions and, and to be wise and even to use her economic wisdom in the market. Uh, it's, it's good that she does this. So um, that's important to us as well. Her home is a home of beauty and refinement. Verse 22, she makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Now that's interesting because sometimes in the Christian church we can think that um, having any form of, I don't know, nice clothing or a nice home in any sense is, is really bad and that should not be done. You should only have, you know, things that are aged or something, and you can't have a beautiful home, beautiful clothing, this sort of thing. 
well, we certainly have a case throughout the scripture for a balanced approach to money and finances. Let that be said, subject for another time. Here's, here's a little indication that it is no bad thing that the woman of God buys fine linen and purple fabric, probably would have been an expensive fabric, and does so not to be proud, of course, but simply to create a beautiful environment for her family, to, uh, to clothe her children, her husband, uh, well. That's, that's not seen as a negative, that's seen as a, as a positive. Of course, to handle these things well and steward our finances appropriately, let that be said. But here's a case actually for a woman seeing her home as an environment really to curate and beautify, and there's no shame in that in Proverbs 31. Her core, next, is character. What really stands out about the Proverbs 31 woman, verse 25, is her character, her godly character. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. In other words, the Proverbs 31 woman is defined by a certain approach and outlook to life. She views herself as made by God, as designed by God, as the bearer of great dignity. She uses strength appropriately to take dominion in her tasks. She is, of course, a partner with the man in fulfilling that dominion mandate of Genesis 1. So she's not supposed to lean on him alone to, to take dominion of the earth. She's supposed to partner with him in all sorts of ways. And is the Proverbs 31 woman not doing that in manifold ways as the text shows? And she is fundamentally unruffled by the uncertainty of life in a fallen world. This is a woman whose core is the Lord God. If you want to really zero in to the essence of godly womanhood, it is not a certain set of skills, not a certain set of duties that she performs. It is godliness. She loves loves the Lord. And so she has a different attitude than a woman who does not know the Lord. She, of course, has to battle the flesh, as we all do, man and woman alike. And yet, if you, if you were to try to capture her character, you would see that she is not anxious because she trusts in the Lord, her God. Though, to be very clear, right, her life is a whirl of activity. So she has many balls in the air that she is juggling. This is not, again, this is not a low-intensity existence. This is a very intense existence. And it takes, listen, it takes everything this woman has, I'm sure, to get this done. Um, she, she uses every fiber of her being, all her energy, her agency. She is training on godliness and on caring for her children, on making a beautiful home, on using agency in the ways that this text Shows So there is a fundamentally different demeanor to the woman of God, the Old Testament is teaching us, than a non-believing woman. Of course, she has to battle for these things. We all do. We all have to battle the flesh, the world, and the devil. And yet, she is marked by a confident trust in God. She teaches her children as well. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So she is a wise woman. She has all sorts of wisdom that she she gives to those around her. Um, It's a good thing that she is a wise woman. The man of God, her husband, wants her to be wise and to use wisdom in all facets of life. And she is teaching her children to be kind in a world that is characterized so often by cruelty. Lastly, she stands out. There's so many more things to talk about, but these are just six to highlight. She stands out in a world addicted to only one kind of beauty. So the world has always prized beauty, right? But look at verse 30. Look at what, what kind of beauty the Lord prizes. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The Bible is not saying here that it is bad to be beautiful or bad, to be charming, to have different gifts of personality, to be winning, to be fun, these sorts of things. That's, that's not what the scripture is teaching us. God, God makes our personalities, doesn't, us, doesn't he? God gives us the traits that we have. I'm not talking about sinful traits, but God gives us affections and, 
and a demeanor and a type. God is the one who shapes whether you're, to use modern terminology, an extrovert or an introvert. God is the one, or a middlevert. I don't know what the term is there. An extroverted, what is it? Say again. Ambivert. Okay, well, if you got nothing else from this class this morning, take that home with you. Ambivert. Thank you. I, I did not know that. Ambivert. Uh, wherever you fall in the vert spectrum, charm, it, this is true, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but fearing the Lord is what causes this husband to praise his wife. We're getting by implication that the husband loves that his wife fears the Lord above all. This means that she reverences God. She does not fundamentally care what the world thinks about her. She does not find her identity in whether people think she is attractive. She does not find her identity in whether people think that she has a charming and winning personality. Those aren't bad things, as you've heard me say. She finds her identity, though, fundamentally in Yahweh, in the covenant God of Israel. She finds her worth, her identity, her dignity, and her status in God. This is a world that strains, tries with great efficacy and intent to get women to find their identity in anything but God. And in 2018, in the visual culture, it bears comment, further comment on beauty because in a visual culture like ours, where we now increasingly communicate not even so much by words, but by pictures, you know, you think of gifs. Of course, there's a debate over how to say gifs. Is it gifs or gifs? I go with gif. Ambigif, if you will. <laughs> Whatever the case, young women are going to, we have to know this, as fathers and heads of home, also mothers training our daughters, certainly, we have to know that this culture, driven by satanic force, is trying to get our little girls to find their identity, their worth, their dignity in their looks, in what men think of them, in being sexually attractive, and we teach a totally different ideal in our homes. We teach that a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised, whether she is considered drop-dead gorgeous, and God may have made her that way, or she is not. It does not matter. This is what matters, that whether you are married or single, whatever your specific call, your specific role in life regarding the family, there is a tremendous power when a woman fears the Lord, reverences God, holds God in awe, and is saved by his grace. That creates a powerful testimony that stands out today as it did 4,000 years ago. So that's the first place I wanted to go to talk about godly womanhood. We see, as we were talking about last week, that um, there, a, a woman does not enter this status if she has a ring on her finger. This is, this is a, a text that does speak to a wife and a mother, to be sure. And the Bible often does this. It shapes our understanding of both manhood and womanhood by talking about manhood and womanhood in the context of marriage. But as you've heard me say in this class, we don't simply say to someone, oh, now you're married, so now this applies to you. For example, as, as Christian fathers and mothers, we're trying to go to a text like this with, for example, let's say our daughters, and we're trying to shape them according to this image that we have no idea, frankly, uh, whether they're going to be married or not. So what I'm trying to say is texts that speak to either husbands or wives, fathers or mothers, actually, I think, apply more broadly to boys or girls, men or women, whether or not they are married. Of course, those texts have first application to married couples, but we, we are not called only to start teaching these things when somebody enters uh, the covenant of marriage. We're called to teach these things from cradle to grave. So that's part of what I'm trying to do. That's kind of the method of interpretation or hermeneutic we're working from, that even these texts which bear directly on one institution actually shape our views for children, for the way we raise, in this instance, our little girls. Second, the woman of God respects her husband, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 22. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I could go on, but I will leave off there, though I will reference the succeeding verses in 25 through 33. The two key terms for a wife in Ephesians 5 are to submit and to respect the husband. Verse 33, let the wife see that she respects her husband. The central focus in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 is the husband. So for whatever reason, Paul is most concerned to shape the character of a godly husband, to help a godly husband see that he is called to self-sacrificially love his wife. His leadership is shaped by self-sacrifice in the very image of Jesus Christ himself. But Paul does not shy away in terms of this household code, as it would have been called. He does not shy away from teaching about godly womanhood either. And so we see that submission is the central word from Paul to a woman. And it's an all-of-life reality. Verse 24, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, we should not take away from this teaching that the Apostle Paul thinks that a wife should submit to her husband if he is sinning. To be very clear, she should not follow her husband if he is sinning. She should definitely not. Further, if uh, a husband, against Paul's words here, against all the teaching of the Bible, is abusive to his wife, either verbally or physically, psychologically, she should not consent to that. She should not continue to place herself under that. She should go to her elders and even uh, uh, civic authorities. And uh, depending on the degree to which this is happening, she should enlist their help. So this text is in no sense enfranchising abuse in any way. If you're reading carefully and you're seeing what Paul calls the husband to, as I talked about in previous weeks, you're seeing that the husband can never think that he has the right to mistreat his wife. Because again, he is the one who is in the very role of Christ himself. Christ loving his church, laying down his life for his church, giving his body to protect his church spiritually, buy back his church from Satan, and give his church full atonement for sin. So with those caveats noted, um, you, don't, you never want to drown out the teaching of the Bible in caveats, by the way, even as you need to make caveats, and particularly in a you know, secular culture like ours. With those caveats made, we should also see that a wife's fundamental posture toward her husband is one of respect and is one of submission. Submission is so commonly misunderstood. Hupotasso is the most common word used for uh, the term submit in the Greek. Submission does not mean... As I've said previously, that a wife lays down her intellect, her agency, her wisdom, these sorts of things. It does not mean further that a husband says what the family's going to do and the wife sits there like a statue. It does mean that in a marriage relationship, there is a godly balance where a man who is confident and secure in God is not afraid at all of soliciting his wife's wisdom. And so he's, there's this perpetual cycle going on in a marriage where they're talking through all sorts of things. And the woman actually does find joy. Let's be very clear. She finds joy in her husband leading her well. And she submits to him. She follows his leadership in everything, Paul says. This is not merely something that wives are called to do just because God wants them to obey. It is a way that godly womanhood stands out in a sinful world where, as we talked about last week, Genesis 3, men and women fight one another all around us. Men and women are fighting one another all around us to varying degrees. The conflict that God foretold in Genesis 3.16 is playing out and will play out to the end of the age. But Ephesians 5 is the gospel answer to Genesis 3. This is the way that the sinful dynamics of the curse are overcome by the Spirit's power. When the gospel saves a man and saves a woman and they are married, 
This is part of how they put on display in living form the glory of God. A husband now, self-sacrificially, leads his family and loves his wife. And a wife now, as the church submits to Christ, sees great purpose and value and finds great joy in following her husband and in building him up as a leader, not tearing him down. There are, of course, different ways that this can go awry. We can trace those out in week six of this class, I think it's December 16th. But fundamentally, we need to see that when we live out these dynamics in the home, when a husband and wife obey Ephesians 5 by the power of divine grace, we are putting on display the wisdom of God. We are showing that the dynamics of the curse can be overcome. And we are even imaging the gospel of Jesus Christ in our homes. When a man leads in a godly way and when a wife submits and respects her husband in a godly way. So is this stuff powerful? Again, we, we so commonly talk about we want to be a witness. We, we want to be an evangelistic presence in the world. How do we do this? It's hard to do it, isn't it? And, and we encounter opposition in seeking to be a witness. This is a major way that God has called many of us, not all of us, not all of us, 1 Corinthians 7, but many of us to put his gospel on display. These dynamics, these gospel dynamics which overcome curse dynamics. Ephesians 5 being the answer to Genesis 3. This is not always easy <laughs> to underplay my statement a good deal. I, I'm called to teach the ideal, right? That's what you're called to do in a setting like this. But in reality, in the lived reality of everyday Christianity, it's going to be the case that it's not easy, certainly some days, for a godly woman to follow her husband's leadership. It's not. It's not going to be easy year one. It's not going to be easy necessarily year 37 or year 17. There are going to be unique challenges all the way through because both husband and wife have a sin nature. Sin has been overcome by the power of Christ's cross, and yet sin is not eradicated until either we die or Christ returns. And so it is not always going to be easy for a godly woman to follow her husband because he's not going to bat a 1,000. In fact, he may not even bat 700. Uh, if he's playing for the Royals, he may not even bat 250. That was cheap. That was bad. I'm from New England, so I'm simultaneously, just so you know, claiming Red Sox and Royals. It's very opportunistic on my part. We're hoping for a better year next year, are we not? Let it, so let it be said, so let it be done. Okay, so... It's not always easy for that, that woman to follow that man as he is trying to lead his family well, but he's not going to do it perfectly. But um, still, still, there is such power and beauty when a woman does follow her husband uh, in, in, an, in a God-appropriate, biblically called way. And it's not, always, it's not easy for a man to lead a wife, especially a gifted, godly, wise wife. Again, he's not intimidated by her. He's not insecure regarding her. Nonetheless, it's not an easy deal. Not every man has an alpha personality, so-called. Some men are shy and retiring. It's not easy necessarily to step into the role, the God-given role of leading wife and leading a family. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for all of us. This is, these, these dynamics are a challenge for every husband and every wife. Let's just let it be said. And again, they don't necessarily get vacuumed away after year one, two, or three. They, they continue. Uh, I know some godly couples, very godly couples, leadership couples, who, man, in their fourth decade of marriage have to work things through. And it can get, it can get challenging. It, it can get, you can get low in marriage, can't you? Those of us who are married know that this can happen. And yet, and yet, we have the power of Christ in us. And, and we know, we know the secret to strengthening our marriages and strengthening our families. The secret in Christianity is not asserting your strength over the other person and ruling the day. So often the solution when things are sticky, whether it's year three or year 53, is confession and repentance, isn't it? It's humility. I think a man is called to lead wherever he can in humility, in confession, and repentance to break up that ice. But I think ideally, both spouses, man and woman of God, 
are searching their heart after, you know, something, something not ideal has happened. And they are coming to one another sort of at the same intersection. You know, they're almost running into each other, the cars, if you will. Pardon the metaphor. And, and they're eager. They're both eager as the Spirit moves in their heart. And they have time for reflection to be reconciled to one another. How does that happen? It doesn't happen by making excuses. Uh, it doesn't happen by psychologizing or therapeutizing what has gone wrong. Well, it's just that I was feeling this way, or I didn't, I didn't, who, who has not said this in this room in a conflict, married or single? I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. That's what I call the Hollywood apology, where you, uh, you put a strong if, you know, or a if I, you know, I didn't mean to. It's all kind of the same species of, a, of non-apology apology, yes? As Christians, single or married, our goal is this. Our goal is to be at a point where God has broken up the ice of our heart and we go to one another and we say, I am sorry. I wronged you. I dishonored God. Please forgive me. Friends, as much as there is any secret in air quotes to marriage, it's that. It's humility. It's confession. It's repentance. And in this context, if a woman is in a pattern of not submitting to her husband, not respecting him, not building up her, uh, his leadership, excuse me, she is called to repent for that. And, and that will be, by God's grace, that will be a catalyst to health in the marriage. And there are, there are marriages that are, that are plagued by this very issue, just as there are marriages that are plagued by an unchristlike husband. It goes both ways. We do not in the Christian church say that one sex is godly and the other is ungodly, as we've talked about. So much more to say. Third matter we need to talk about with godly womanhood. The, the woman of God trains other women of God as she matures. Titus 2. Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. Titus 2 is not just about women, by the way, but it is about women in this sense. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, that's an interesting comment, by the way. Um, there's different perspectives on alcohol in the church. Uh, at the very least, we need to make it clear that there, there is no place in the Christian church for being a slave to wine. And it is fascinating to watch our culture. I think there are many men and women alike who are just absolutely enslaved to alcohol. And we, we have to be very careful about that. Even if you see alcohol in Scripture as perhaps an, an aspect of ultimate blessing in the New Jerusalem... Uh, you need to make clear that we are called to be very careful about these things. And I fear that many people around us are losing themselves because of alcohol. Just something to consider, even if you yourself do not think it is sin sinful, excuse me, to drink. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. There's to be a culture in a godly church, in a Christ-exalting church of discipleship. That's what Paul teaches here in Titus 2. It, it extends beyond womanhood. But here, in these verses, Paul teaches that older women have a vital role. So, contra evangelical churches that only want one type of congregant, namely the fresh-faced 20-something, there's supposed to be a multi-generational church. In God's church, everyone has value. Everyone has a role to play. It is very easy in an ageist culture like ours for men and women alike to feel like they don't have value once they hit a certain age. Our culture puts tremendous pressure, as I was talking about earlier, on appearance. So people all around us are desperate, just desperate, to look young, to recapture their teens and their 20s even three or four decades later, which is a difficult proposition for most of us. The Bible does not exalt youth in the sense that it's above maturity. In fact, the Bible really exalts maturity, uh, generally speaking. And Lord willing, there is serious godliness in those who are older who are seasoned and experienced in the faith. Now, what Paul is not setting up here is a kind of shadow eldership among the women. Elders are elders of the flock. Uh, the men called to be an elder are men who are called to shepherd and oversee 
the entire church, men and women alike. So let that be said. There's nothing here in Titus 2 that, you know, would call for there to be some sort of parallel leadership dynamic and structure in the church that is kind of effectively the Senate to the House or the House to the Senate regarding the church. That's not what Paul is teaching here. What Paul is really calling for is what happens at Starbucks and Panera every week in terms of uh, an older woman meeting with a younger woman, training her in godliness, helping her work through the dynamics we've been talking, helping her, helping her put these things into practice, helping her take the ideal that we're talking about and then learn how to work it out in everyday experience. That's the kind of thing that is absolutely vital. And in too many evangelical churches, this does not obtain. There are no older women around. The church doesn't want older women. Paul is saying that churches must have a women's ministry. Sometimes you hear people say that complementarians don't value women teaching. Paul is saying women must teach. <laughs> he has it in a specific context, in this context of woman-to-woman discipleship. They're to teach, Titus 2.3, what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to have godly character. So what we say as complementarians is that if women are not teaching in the church, the church is misfiring. We locate this appropriately in, in God's good order that he has given us, and yet we locate it. We are trying to raise up older women to disciple younger women. I would just encourage you to think about whatever your age, whatever role you're in, um, I would encourage you to think about whether you are investing in the younger generation or whether you are open to the older generation speaking into your life. And I'm not one who wants to programatize everything the New Testament identifies. In other words, I think this can really happen organically. I know this church has numerous venues for women to teach women and train them, and I love those. But this is also just an organic call. It can be a woman finding another woman in the hall and saying, would you like to get coffee? And then just talking, talking through these things, talking through biblical womanhood, talking through the Christian faith, these sorts of things. It can, it can be that organic, just as it can be set aside teaching times uh, that, that this church has woman to woman. I, I love those as well. My wife has done some teaching uh, recently at Midwestern, for example, for the, the seminary wives, and we'll do some more of that. My mother-in-law, Jody Ware, does a lot of that. She goes around the country and around the world even teaching women in different church contexts, and so I fully, fully support that as well. Paul coins a Greek word here, oikonergos, to capture the role of a godly woman, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, a worker at home, most properly. So in a unique way, a woman who is called to marriage and motherhood is a worker at home, a domestic worker in a way that a man never is said to be in the scripture. To be a home worker, homemaker would be our closest equivalent, although even that sounds quaint today, but hey, we don't care. To be a homemaker is not a negative reality in the biblical mind, as you can see here. This is what, in part, older women are to train younger women to be, to be a homemaker, a home worker. Edith Schaefer, wife of Francis Schaefer, said this about family life. Being challenged by what a difference her cooking and her way of serving is going to make in the family life gives a woman an opportunity to approach this homemaking with the feeling of painting a picture or writing a symphony. What a marvelous approach to biblical womanhood, to see it in aesthetic dimension, to see it as a work of art, crafting this, this life together in, in a way that defies uh, a kind of Marxist economic valuing of what we do. There's no price tag you can put on making a lovely meal, making a beautiful home, as we've been talking about. But Edith Schaefer, at least, in her book, The Hidden Art of Homemaking, was a voice for seeing this. She's a very, very gifted woman, very bright, very intelligent, probably would have been a world-renowned artist if she was not married to Francis Schaeffer and in ministry with him, supporting his ministry. And yet she approached biblical womanhood from an aesthetic dimension that is really beautiful. And that is where we see that this does not, this does not depend upon, again, being married. This is, this is a way of life a woman can cultivate whether she is married or not. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot, excuse me, identifies the spiritual dimension of such labor where Schaefer identifies the aesthetic 
dimension. Here's what Elizabeth Elliot, about 40 years ago, said about homemaking. The routines of housework and of mothering may be seen today as a kind of death. She's responding to modern feminists who argued that homemaking is a kind of death. It is appropriate, actually, Elliot says, that they should be. For they offer the chance, housework and mothering offer the chance, day after day, to lay down one's life for others. Then they are no longer routines. By being done with love and offered up to God with praise, they are thereby hallowed, made, made holy, as the vessels of the tabernacle were hallowed. Not because they were different from other vessels in quality or function, but because they were offered to God. A mother's part in sustaining the life of her children and making it pleasant and comfortable is no triviality. It calls for self-sacrifice and humility. But it is the route, as was the humiliation of Jesus, to glory. Wow. That is a potent little summation of the dignity and glory. I am using that word advisedly of homemaking and mothering. It's not that there aren't other ways that a woman can contribute to her family. We've talked about that. We've said that there are. There are even seasons when a woman may have to help uh, financially pitch in for her family. And certainly when before children come and after children are in the home, there's all sorts of gray areas that a godly woman faces that are not negative. Uh, and, and so she can contribute substantially in those seasons. But wow, what a beautiful picture to see housework and mothering actually as a kind of death actually as a humbling reality, but to see the way of humility as the way of glory. That is really Christianity in a nutshell. The way of humility is the way of glory. In our flesh, I'm drafting off of Martin Luther here and his theology of glory and his theology of the cross. In our flesh, we want that which makes us look great. We want the impressive job. We want the best title. We want the corner office. We want people to laud us on a blog or a podcast. But in Christianity, the very nature of the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God to earth, is humility. Even stronger than humility, it's humiliation. It's not looking impressive in the world's eyes. That is the call of every Christian, man or woman alike, but it definitely applies to the different duties and tasks God gives us. We see the ordinary as holy. We see the moment-by-moment -moment experience of our lives, living as a Christian, as doxological. The world does not see this. It does not agree. It does not want to be humiliated. It does not want to be humbled. We in our flesh don't want to be humbled. But this is what the gospel affects in us a grand and glorious humbling in the name by the person and work of Jesus. So older women have a responsibility even to model and teach this joyfully to younger women. Fourth, finally, the woman of God exudes a gentle and quiet spirit. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. In this passage, which I will not go through extensively because we need to hasten to a close, submission to a man, not even a godly man, submission to a man by a Christian woman is seen as having such influence and such agency by divine grace that it can convert an ungodly man. As a woman of God models a submissive, respectful, gracious demeanor, even to an unbelieving husband, she is evangelizing him. Peter is teaching us that that is the power. This is so ironic. That is the power of submission. It feels like you have no agency and no influence, like you're laying that down. In truth, as we're just talking about, humility has tremendous power in the Christian worldview. Everybody today wants to be the type A leader. Uh, I, I, I even hear when I'm watching sports, I, I love basketball as I think I've made painstakingly clear. So I'm watching, you know, basketball, I'm listening to commentators, and, and they'll say, he's realized he needs to be selfish. 
He's realized he needs to be cocky. He's realized he needs to be proud, you know, and, and, and take the game over and, you know, step into the ring. And that's very American, and that's the way we like things. And I'm all for, I'm all for the proper understanding of assertiveness and, and even aggression in the right sense. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Nonetheless, even as there is real power and influence in that kind of agency and stepping into the breach when no one else will, let us be that kind of man. Let us be that kind of Christian. There's also tremendous power in the way of humility. There's also tremendous power, Peter teaches, not in a godly woman uh, assaulting her unbelieving husband with arguments and apologetic resources and badgering him to become a Christian in the context that Peter is addressing. Submission has tremendous power. A gracious, godly demeanor may be one, means that a man, excuse me, may be one without a word. 1 Peter 3, 1. Without a word. Without a word? We're like the word-driven movement, right? Expository preaching, yes. Uh, evangelistic testimony, yes. Amen. I'm all there six days a week and twice on Sunday. But here, Peter does not say it's your well-honed evangelism that is going to win the unbelieving husband. The godly woman is going to win him without a word by her otherworldly demeanor. Now, this applies first and foremost to the context of marriage, but I think we were talking about last week, what is the essence of womanhood, essence of femininity? Great question. I think the Bible gets the closest it comes to directly answering that in verse four here. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This doesn't mean that all godly women have the same personality. That's not what Peter is saying. But it does mean, let's not miss what it does mean, even as we're trying to nuance, let's not miss the plain teaching of Scripture. We reason from the plain teaching of Scripture to the less clear. There is such a thing as a gentle and quiet spirit. It is what the gospel creates in a woman, and it has tremendous agency and influence. Most importantly, in God's sight, a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in God's sight. It is not going to be very precious in the sight of many unbelievers. It's not going to be impressive. It's not going to win awards. It's not going to get promotions necessarily. But it is honoring to the Lord. And it is what marks out a godly woman in a world of lies. The word for quiet here is also used in the Greek in 1 Timothy 2.2 to speak of living a quiet Christian life. So there's a, a peaceableness and a meekness even that uniquely characterizes the woman of God. Friends, let me just be honest. Let's get down to brass tacks. This is not how women are encouraged to see themselves in 2018. Not at all. As we have seen, the scripture does not render a godly woman of no agency, you know, stripper of her personality or something like this, but do not miss just how honored this kind of unique spirit is in our world. There is a unique dignity and demeanor and comportment known to Christian women that the secular world used to have some trace of, still in some cases in America, there's some vestige of it, but I think it's receding. I, I don't know how long it will endure. It doesn't really matter what the culture says about womanhood at the end of the day. It matters what we believe from the word of God and what women of God put on display. Godly womanhood in some has an otherworldly power. Sometimes we think that men do all the, the work in the Christian church, but women of God throughout the Bible in the New Testament are called to all sorts of doxological enterprises. Women of God bankroll the apostles. Women of God are the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Women of God are servants of the church and are, are, are recognized by the apostles themselves as honoring the Lord by their service. Romans 16, Phoebe we think of, and, and many others we could mention. The Bible esteems and even reverences 
womanhood. When I'm talking about all these things, trying to sum them up, I think as well of how women in church history were martyrs, just as men were. In the second century, about 177 AD, there was a slave girl named Blandina in Lyon, present-day France, L-Y-O-N, who was a, an outspoken and, and godly Christian woman. And uh, a persecution against the Christians arose in Lyon in 177. And so, though this is not the way things should be done, even in the world, much less the church, she was condemned to death. Let me read to you from Eusebius's account of the end of Blandina's life. I'll close with this to sum up the power of godly womanhood. After all these, after other martyrs had died, on the last day of the contests, Blandina, a young slave girl, the age of girls in the youth group, Blandina was again brought in with Ponticus, a boy about 15 years old. They had been brought every day to witness the sufferings of the others and had been pressed to swear by the idols. But because they remained steadfast and despised them, the multitude became furious so that they had no compassion for the youth of the boy nor respect for the sex of the woman. Therefore, they exposed them to all the terrible sufferings and took them through the entire round of torture, repeatedly urging them to swear to the idols, but being unable to effect this. For Ponticus, encouraged by his sister so that even the heathen could see that she was confirming and strengthening him, having nobly endured every torture, gave up the ghost. Ponticus, the boy, died first. But the blessed Blandina, last of all, having as a noble mother, encouraged her children, fellow Christians, and sent them before her victorious to the king, endured herself all their conflicts, and hastened after them, glad and rejoicing in her departure, as if called to a marriage supper, rather than cast to wild beasts. This is in a coliseum with a cheering, jeering crowd, this probably drunken crowd waiting to see this young girl, 15 years old probably, be killed by beasts, even as this young boy has just died because of his sufferings. You think it's tough to be a Christian today. You feel like persecution has arisen today and is rising in our time, and it is in the West. It's child's play compared to this, compared to what was happening 19 centuries ago to Christians. There's always been a cost to following Christ. It closes with this. After the scourging, this is what happens to Blandina, so whipping her. After the scourging, after the wild beasts, after she was placed on a roasting seat, a seat heated to terrible heat, and she's made to sit on it, she was finally enclosed in a net and thrown before a bull. And having been tossed about by the animal, but feeling none of the things which were happening to her on account of her hope and firm hold, upon what had been entrusted to her and her communion with Christ, she also was sacrificed. And the heathen themselves confessed that never among them had a woman endured so many and such terrible tortures. Is godly womanhood powerful? Yes. Yes, it is. It was in the second century, and it is today.